This episode is sponsored by the Red River Turning Company, creating one-of-a-kind handcrafted pins from the wood of historical and spiritual landmarks. Writing with the pins of the Red River Turning Company is like holding a piece of history and writing the future. Go to redriverturning.com to see these beautiful hand-turned pins every poet and writer would do well to own. David Taylor is a professor of theology and culture at Fuller University in Houston, Texas. His work centers on revitalizing the church through the creative arts. David has written and edited several books, including his most recent, The Theater of God's Glory, Calvin, Creation, and the Liturgical Arts. In 2016, David produced a short film on the Psalms with Bono and Eugene Peterson. He has lectured widely on the arts in both academic and popular settings in the United States and abroad. I recently had a conversation with David about his work with Bono and Eugene Peterson, as well as his perspective on the relationship between artists and the church. David's thoughts on this essential and sometimes difficult partnership reveal his deep love for both the church and the realm of the arts. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview with David Taylor at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. This is Season 4, Episode 5, A Theology of Art with David Taylor. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't we start by telling us a little bit about who you are and about the work that you're doing. I'd be happy to. I was born and raised in Guatemala City. My parents were missionaries. I have two sisters. Uh, My parents put us in an Austrian school, so we spoke English at home, Spanish with our friends, German at school. And that, I think, at a very early age formed kind of an international, multicultural sense of the world. My mother was a concert pianist, so the only form of music that I could listen to when I was a kid was my mother playing the piano. My father was a a seminary professor by day, but an orchid tender and a sailor by night, as it were. He built a sailboat with a friend and he tended 200 orchids in his backyard. So my parents inculcated in us an appreciation for the aesthetic and artistic dimension of life. Moved to the States, eventually went to the University of Texas at Austin, studied international relations, landed at Regent College for a seminary. So I got an MA in theology and a THM in New Testament. And then ended up back in Austin, was a pastor for 10 years, got my uh, doctorate at Duke Divinity School with Jeremy Begley, and I've been with Fuller Seminary for the last four years, teaching theology and worship and things related to the arts. My wife, Phaedra, is a visual artist. I love the work that she makes. And we have two kids, Blythe and Sebastian, and uh, we live in Houston, Texas. Well, there are so many things that I'm excited to talk to you about because the work that you're doing in the arenas of faith and art are so close to the work that's meaningful in my own life. We could almost just point in a direction and anywhere we land would be a great conversation. But I think a good place to start would be the short film you did on the Psalms, where you brought together Eugene Peterson, who is the translator of the message version of the Bible, 
with Bono, whom most of us, of course, would know as the lead singer of the band U2. And I'd love to hear you talk some about what motivated you to bring Bono together with Eugene Peterson and what this documentary on the Psalms is all about. Well, the, the original impetus or the occasion for the idea is a little bit curious. I actually had a dream one night, and, and in that dream, Bono and Eugene were talking on the Psalms. Uh, I'm not a diehard YouTube fan, so I was surprised by the dream. I woke up and I thought, well, that's a very interesting exchange and an interesting dream I just had, and wouldn't it be interesting if that actually happened? <laughs> so <laughs> one thing leads to another, and I uh, called Eugene Peterson and uh, talked to him, and it's a, it's a long and adventurous story of how it all came about, and I've written about it in several places. But long story short, he said yes, and then through a, a series of friends doing me favors, was able to get a letter to Bono's people, and uh, long story short, eventually said yes. We could take our entire time talking about how this actually <laughs> came about, or all the times that it nearly did not actually happen. Wow. That's amazing that it all sparked from the seed of a, of a dream that you chased down, like literally a dream in the night. <laughs> literally was a dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, and by the way, I've seen the film and I think it turned out brilliant. And I think the conversations are very important, but I wanted to ask you why, you know, cause Eugene is more of a pastoral figure in some ways, or, or definitely a church leader. And then of course, Bono being the artist or the rock star that we know him, why do you feel that it's important to build bridges between artists and church? Well, at the very least, because we are all part of the body of Christ. So if I, if I begin from an ecclesiological standpoint, I would say we're all members of one body and we need to figure out how to be in relationship with each other. And artists are no more nor any less important to the body of Christ. And so they get to be in the mix as well, I guess the more interesting answer is that artists have over you know, the years, the decades, the centuries, found themselves in a non-boring relationship <laughs> to the church. <laughs> and that's a way of saying artists have related to the church in a whole host of ways. There isn't only one way in which artists have related to the church. Some find a home in the life of the church very easily, and some find that, that home with greater difficulty. Some have uh, existed more at the margins of the life of the church. So there isn't one story that describes that relationship. But in as much as Eugene is a church leader, somebody whose profession and vocation have resided at the center of the church, and Bono, who has existed more at the margins of the life of, say, local congregations, he would regard his band and crew as a kind of parish. But in terms of affiliation with a local congregation over the last four decades. He has you know, lived more at the margins of that kind of life. I, I felt it was important to have them have a conversation together because I knew that there was a kind of relationship between them. Uh, there was a, a respect on both sides, and I knew that there was a friendship in the making. I knew they shared an interest in the arts. They shared an interest in the Psalms. They shared an interest in poetry. They shared an interest in a and the church having a prophetic voice uh, within society. Uh, they both care about honesty before God, honesty before others. 
So there are a lot of things uh, in common that they shared. I also knew that uh, that if there were anything good that could come from the world of the arts and the world of the church, it would arise out of relationship and more deeply out of friendship. And my hope, one of the many hopes that I had with the short film, is that observing their relationship on screen and a friendship that is marked by an affection, by respect, would encourage artists and church leaders to imagine that for themselves and to know that uh, the, the church has everything to offer the, the life and, and calling of artists. All the good that God has invested in the life of the church is at the disposal of artists as well, as it is to anybody, and that the church has uh, a great deal to gain from the unique gifts and uh, perspectives and work that artists bring to uh, the body of Christ. Not just within, say, a congregational context, it's, it's worship and community and discipleship and mission, but, you know, the life of the church at large, uh, the church as it um, might be described as the church scattered. Um, so, you know, those are the kinds of things that I hope would come from it as a kind of case study or a, a glimpse of a relationship that could replicate itself in other contexts. Well, I want to ask you a really broad question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what role do you feel the artist, and particularly the artist of faith, plays in the shaping of our culture? I could answer that in three ways. Artists, at one level, are doing something very basic. They are making culture, they are attending the garden of the world, they are involved in every aspect of human culture, and shaping all facets of human society. The design of your shoes, the color of your shoes, your shorts, your pants, your shirt, your ties, your hat, your bling, your accessories, <laughs> your computer, your phone, your coffee mug, your houses, your educational buildings, your hospitals, mm -hmm. your sports, commercial, <laughs> I mean, you name it. Yeah, there is yeah. no place in human society where artists are not involved. You know, trucks and commercials for trucks, and you know comic books and movies and politics and you know emblems and designs i mean artists are doing what artists are supposed to be doing as human beings which is shaping human society and human culture in aesthetically particular ways you know they're saying hey there is an aesthetic form to human life and we're involved in that Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the most fundamental and probably the most powerful ways in which artists are shaping the ways that humans exist in the world. A second, maybe more particular way in which certain, say, certain kinds of artists are involved in shaping human culture is that they are both interpreting and forming. So let's say Childish Cambino, you know, uh, Donald Glover's, uh, music video. This is America. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's one of the most powerful <laughs> music videos of the last decade. He is trying to reckon with violence in America, specifically within the African uh, American community. Um, mm -hmm. And he is trying to make sense of 
violence both within, without, between, with, you know, uh, against, uh, on behalf of violence. Mm -hmm. And so he's interpreting it. But in as much as his music video is an act of interpretation of trying to make sense of something, he is then generating a work that is forming the way that a viewer now thinks about violence in America, violence within, you know, the experience of an African American person mm -hmm. in our society. So every act of interpretation is also an act of formation. Mm -hmm. So if I, you know, uh, Kendrick, let's say Kendrick Lamar uh, wins a Pulitzer Prize for his album, Damn. Mm -hmm. That album it is also an act of interpretation. And now Kendrick Lamar gets a Pulitzer Prize. And all of the institutional inertia or uh, esteem or position of a value that a Pulitzer Prize endows a specific work of art like his then becomes something that shapes the institution of Pulitzer Prize mm -hmm. uh, or a Nobel Prize, right? A Nobel Prize for literature given to Bob Dylan the first time that is done now makes it more plausible for the Nobel Prize tradition to say work like his and not just high-end literary fiction matters in the world. Mm -hmm. So it, to the extent that artists in all sorts of ways, TV and radio and movies and photography and dance and novels are interpreting, uh, are saying, hey, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be married. This is what mm -hmm. it means to have romantic or sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. Those things over time are then forming the ways that human beings live in the world, making things more possible and more plausible. So that's a second way in which artists are shaping. And then a third again, maybe a more specific description, and this is something I argue in the book I write, The Theater of God's Glory, is that artists are forming our senses, our emotions, and our imaginations. That, that, that I would say, is the unique characteristic of works of art and work of artists. Is that it's sort of this intentional and intensive engagement of our physical sensory, our emotional, affective, and our imaginative faculties as human beings mm -hmm. and so i could say that hospitality matters i could write a book about hospitality i could preach a sermon about hospitality but if i then choose to serve a certain kind of coffee and i serve it in certain kinds of mugs that are crafted you know by hand and are offered to visitors who come to our church uh, you know, new, new Christians or non-Christians, and right there they are offered a very welcoming uh, experience of good coffee that tastes a certain way, that makes them feel uh, cared for and helps them imagine that their day is going to be good after all, you know? Uh, whatever it is that it may be, you know, whether it's in a church or a coffee shop or a hospital, uh, you know, wherever coffee may be offered, it's the art, say, the artistic quality of a good coffee in a kind of mug offered in a very particular way that the arts are saying, hospitality is not an abstract thing, it's a very concrete thing, and I'm going to communicate it to you these, through these sensory, uh, emotionally rich, imaginative rich means. And I think that, of course, is what then helps us understand why the arts have been felt to be so dangerous from Plato on down through the you know western history 
because it gets to us quicker than the speed of our rational capacities to uh, make sense of it. You know, it touches us deeply and immediately before we're able to analyze why we have been touched. And, you know, that is something that as artists and, you know, teachers and church leaders, we want to be good stewards and caretakers and servants and humble in how we uh, are putting our art out into the world, even though at the end of the day, we can't really finally control how people respond to it. But I think the sensory, emotional, imaginative aspect of the arts is what lends the arts its particular power in the world. Uh, That Met Gala, you know, recently that... uh, featured works inspired by the Catholic imagination, right there you have this perfect example of how fashion becomes this concrete instance of the physical form of of cloth and everything else, you know, that would have been sewn onto these works of fashion art that then are causing people to feel something and to imagine the world through a Catholic lens that is then you know, mediated or modulated through, say, the secular contemporary fashion world. And uh, so, again, you could write an article in the New Yorker or the New York Times or Christianity Today, or you could write a theological book about it. But it's another thing for for that fashion event to take place and then to affect us, in, you know, in the very specific ways. So those are the three things, you know, again, very fundamental kind of garden tending, you know, shaping of human society at every level. And then more specifically, this interpreting and forming simultaneous expression and, you know, reconfiguring what it means to be human in the world. And then I would say the particular ways in which artists do that is through this sensory, emotional, imaginative means. So those are the things that I would say that uh, describe the ways in which or, or, or how it is that artists are shaping human cultures. What would you say then, you know, I'm curious to know your perspective as a professor of theology, what can we do to facilitate growth in the relationship between artists and the church? Well, uh, the first and most important thing is to have awesome podcasts. That, that, I would mm. say. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> and with that, I will end my conversation. Uh, no. Uh, I, I would say uh, it, it, it's an all-hands-on-deck effort, right? Everything matters. Yeah. It, it doesn't yeah. matter how small how simple, how ordinary it feels. Every effort matters. Uh, you know, so podcasts, yours and others that I'm aware of that are reaching different kinds of people in different ways, I say may your tribe increase. And mm-hmm. you know, the publishing of books continues to flourish despite all the doomsayers about <laughs> the end of mm-hmm. books. Books are still being published, still being written. And blogs are still being published and written. And uh, online magazines are still being published and written, Mm -hmm. everything from an image journal to a relevant magazine or a pace magazine, Mm -hmm. Christian Century. Uh, Arts are being talked about there. Uh, Interviews are happening where people get to know a particular person in a a more careful way, and and people get inspired by that. Christian colleges Mm -hmm. and universities 
they have art departments and people in mm-hmm. English departments and biblical studies or theology departments, and they're teaching about this, and young people are going, getting inspired. And then there are schools, you know, public schools, private schools, Christian schools, homeschool, co-ops. They're talking mm-hmm. about the arts, and churches are doing very serious things with the arts with kids, and kids are getting mm-hmm. inspired and thinking, well, I could grow up and be that. And then parents are becoming anxious about their children becoming a full-time ballet dancer because that's a crazy <laughs> world. But then pastors come along who've read a book like For the Beauty of the Church, and they say, hey, no, there's something good ahead here. Be not afeard. Mm-hmm. Your kid's going to be okay. <laughs> and that's what yeah. happened with me. I had a family and our, our, our church say, hey, our eight-year-old son wants to be a ballet dancer. Can you help mm-hmm. us? Can you walk with us? I said, absolutely. I'm happy to. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's now, what, 17, 18 years old? So 10 years now, it's been wonderful to see that kind of relational partnership. Mm-hmm. And uh, artists need to keep making work in the world because nothing begets nothing, but something begets something. And you have no idea what your work may amount to. And you may not know until after you've gone on to your terminal reward, but it matters. And yeah. uh, there are retreats that are happening at Lady Lodge or Image Journal's Glen Workshop or the Grunewald mm-hmm. Guild. There are residencies and internships and conferences like the Q Conference. and mm-hmm. I mean, it's everywhere, right? And, and then artists yeah. over the last 10, 20 years have gotten really excited, artists of faith, about social justice and how yeah. art can serve the purposes of God's justice and peace in the world. That's exciting. We want to encourage those initiatives. But I would say at bottom, the most important and effective uh, thing that can be done is relationship. There's this mm-hmm. form of relationships that then hopefully lead to friendships. And sometimes those will happen between strangers. Sometimes it happens between a, a lay person and their senior pastor, or between artists of one congregation and another, or older and younger generations, Christians and non. Those will always be the best hope for the church's relationship to the arts within its life and as it exists within you know different societies around the globe, mm-hmm. is this... The ways in which we, I hate to say it because it sounds so obvious, but the ways in which we love each other, yeah. that's the most powerful way. That, the best art always comes about through those kinds of relationships. Now, you could also say more specifically, some of the best art has, ha, has inevitably come out of partnerships or relationships or networks, you know, whether it's Paris in the 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. or, you know, certain artistic ventures in New York City or L.A., or the boondocks, you know, in Wyoming, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the middle of nowhere in Texas. It's artists coming there for three days or for three years or, or, you know, hanging out uh, in intentional ways. Good art has come inevitably out of those kinds of relational contexts. I do think the hope of the church resides in artists' abilities to love one another well and to love the church well, to love their neighbors well, and church pastors and leaders and ministers and loving artists. Well, it doesn't mean you have to understand it all. You don't have to get it all. You don't even have to like it all, but it, it, but you don't get to not love one another. Mm. And I think that's, that's the thing that I've found over the last 20, 25 years to be you know, consistently the most powerful thing for an artist, for the church, and the most likely way forward for productivity 
and for flourishing of artists um, of all kinds, you know, in all different media, whether they're writing advertising jingles for Nike or, you know, or, you know, serving coffee at a local coffee shop, uh, yeah. relationships. <clears throat> they're hard to come by and they're much harder to sustain over time. And I know that because uh, I was a pastor and I saw them rise and fall and form and, and fall apart. But uh, yeah, it, it really does all come down to, to relationship and hospitality and mutual care and respect and, and uh, a care-filled attention to one another. That's so good, man. I think that's the culmination of our interview right there. I think what you just now said. (laughs) (laughs) That's the mic drop, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, but I guess, you know, it's it's almost a cliche to quote Van Gogh at this point now, but, you know, he's attributed to have said, you know, the greatest form of art is to love people. Oh, yeah. It is. It is. And it's what I told the artists under my care when I was in Austin. I was like, whatever it is that you think you're supposed to be on about in the world as an artist, whatever kind of work, no matter how traditional or non-traditional or weird or cool or whatever it is, the one thing you all have a responsibility to do is to love your audience. And that doesn't mean there's one work that comes out of the love of your audience or one way in which you perform or show your work. But as a Christian, that is your fundamental obligation is to love the people on whose behalf you are making your work. Whether you know them or not, you still have an obligation Mm -hmm and an opportunity really it's a get to not just a have to but it is a have to but a good kind of have to you get to love mm-hmm. your audience and, and when that is yeah. part of the software of your imagination of your heart of, of the of your bones I, I i promise you good work will come of it but even more so not just good work a truer version of you will be in the world and that itself will be a winsome potent testimony to the presence of christ in the world David, thank you so much for talking with us on Makers and Mystics. I really appreciate it and I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music for this episode is provided by Sister Sinjin. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to our guests and featured artists. If you'd like to support the making of this podcast, you can join our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics.